Welcome back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on constitutional government. I'm Adam White. We're recording this in early March of 2021, just as the COVID-19 vaccines come online and there's light at the end of the tunnel for this entire experience of COVID-19. Now, naturally, is also a time to take stock of what the country has been through, what we've learned in the last year or more of grappling with COVID-19, its disruptions to government, its disruptions to life. We've learned a lot of lessons. In terms of governance, one of the lessons that came through most clearly is the basic challenge of governing with expertise, striking a balance between political accountability, public accountability, transparency, and the expertise that oftentimes operates behind closed doors in support of government officials. Well, here to discuss this today is one of my newest colleagues at AEI, my friend Tony Mills. Before joining AEI, Tony was at R Street. He edited Real Clear Policy, and he was an editor at one of my very favorite journals, The New Atlantis. Tony joins us at AEI to continue his study of science and expertise in government. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Adam. And welcome to AEI. I'm just so glad you've joined us as part of the team. This will be one of, of many conversations we'll have in the future. Thanks. Yeah, I hope so. I'm thrilled to be here, too. The paper that is sort of the occasion for this conversation, as it happens, arises from the, the, the program that I direct over at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. The program, for those who aren't familiar with it, is the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. It's a research initiative that I've, I've directed there for a few years, helping to incubate and, and promote scholarship on, on all issues surrounding the modern administrative state. Mostly, it's a lot of law review articles, but from time to time, we, we get a paper that comes from outside of, of legal scholarship per se and, and really probes the deeper issues of modern governance. And Tony's paper, which is available both on the Gray Center's website and also on AEI's website on Tony's scholar page, is a classic example of that sort of scholarship focuses at the foundations of modern administration. The title of the paper is The Role of Judgment and Deliberation in science-based policy. We workshopped it at a roundtable for papers on science, facts, and expertise in governance. And Tony's paper tries to explain how even in the work of science, there's so much judgment involved. And that the nature of that endeavor really highlights the challenge of governing, especially in democratic government, with a basis on science and expertise. Tony, I probably just totally butchered your paper right there. Why don't you describe, I'll shut up now. Why don't you describe what your paper is about? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I should say, you know, it, it is, you mentioned that it's kind of a paper that steps back a little bit and that was very much by design. So I've had a long-standing interest in the relationship between scientific expertise and governance, but obviously the pandemic has really made that problem relationship quite acute. And in thinking about, obviously a lot of people have been weighing in on that topic and I found that it was helpful for me, and I thought that it might be helpful for others to get at some of the fundamental issues by actually bracketing COVID and taking a step back and looking at the nature of scientific expertise in general. And so what I try to do in the paper is, well, I don't really discuss COVID, but also focus a lot on areas of science that are less controversial, you know, astronomy, Fields from our, you know, basic sciences where there's not going to be a lot of obvious political controversy or at any event, a little bit far removed from our current political controversies or domains like medicine, not in the public health context, just sort of ordinary clinical medicine where 
we are familiar with the idea of relying on experts on a very personal level. Anyway, so I want to focus on expertise kind of in those domains and really think about what expertise is and, as you mentioned, the role of human judgment in expertise. And the purpose of doing that is to then consider what it means to integrate scientific expertise into political decision-making. And I think that the role that human judgment plays in expertise is very important for how we understand that integration. And so at the risk of doing too much prefatory talk. I don't know. Please, please continue. I think one of the things I'm trying to combat is what I can think of as kind of the received view of what scientific expertise or scientific knowledge is. And that's that, and this is very prevalent in the political realm where we treat scientific knowledge as a kind of product. You know, we have experts over here and then science expertise is this black box and knowledge is spat out of the black box. And then the lay non-scientists on the other side in the political domain or whatever can then input that knowledge or not. And specifically, I think what this kind of picture of scientific, and I'm kind of parodying it, but there's a more sophisticated version of it that you can give. I think the, the, the political value and maybe psychological value of this view of scientific knowledge is that it allows you to constrain or eliminate the role that judgment and deliberation play when we're making political practical decisions based on science. So if we just follow the science, the science says X, you know, policy interventions, Y will follow with deductive certainty. There's no need to debate about it. There's no room for debate about it, maybe aside from, you know, this narrow band of kind of most effective means or something. And then I think that this view, which is not also not correct, is practically problematic, not only because it's incorrect, but it elicits a kind of skeptical backlash, populist backlash, where people rightly sense that science is being used or exploited for political purposes or something like that. And the kind of psychologically understandable counterreaction is to say, we reject the science, we reject the entire the whole operation. We don't trust the people who are saying this, and we don't trust the, the experts who are you know, advising the decision makers. And so you get this kind of, I think I call it a demoralizing dialectic in the paper, where you have, on the one hand, this very mechanical, technocratic view of how knowledge, scientific knowledge operates and translates into policy. And then you get this backlash to it. And they just kind of you seesaw back and forth between these two things. What I try to do with the paper is to sketch an alternative view of what scientific expertise is. And one that I think will kind of avoid that demoralizing dialectic. And that view is one that really emphasizes the role of human judgment. And so I'm thinking about scientific knowledge more like a craft than, you know, an algorithmic black box, a craft in which expert skill and judgment is needed. And so that when it becomes necessary to rely on expertise to make political decisions, what we're really doing is relying on experts on their judgment and integrating their judgments into a broader realm in which lots of kinds of expertise are needed and lots of kinds of human judgments are needed and therefore deliberation is needed in order to figure out the proper course of action. Well, let's begin then with the judgments that are inherent in the work of science itself. In the paper, you, you focus on the scientists' goals and methods, everything from picking what they're going to commit their research activities to to how they go about constructing their, their experiments and so on. Then all the way down at the end to interpreting their data and testing hypotheses and constructing the hypotheses that'll be tested. I mean, we truly don't have time to, to cover everything, but maybe 
Could you pick an example or two of, of the most salient ways in which human judgment is brought to bear in the work of science itself? Sure. Yeah. And so I would begin by saying, you know, it may seem, especially in the realm of like public health or something where we're explicitly asking experts to give recommendations, it may seem sort of strange to argue that, you know, homing out on the role of judgment is revelatory, right? I mean, isn't it kind of obvious that that's what experts are doing? I'm actually not so sure it is. But I think if we look at, you know, research scientists, where we're talking about a biologist doing you know, basic research in molecular genetics or whatever field you want, even in that realm, I think judgment plays a role. And so the question is, what, what do we mean by judgment and, and why is it necessary? Well, I think judgment comes into play when there's uncertainty, when there is a realm of possible outcomes or decisions that can be made, at least some of which are all reasonable in some way, right? So there's some uncertainty about where to go, how to go, what to do, how to interpret something, where you're taking general principles or methods and applying them to a particular case at hand. And so, you know, in a very uncontroversial way, and if a scientific researcher is trying to decide what to research, judgment comes into play, right? About like what kind of topic is worthy of pursuit and what sorts of methods might be needed to understand or answer your research question when it's sensible to give up on a particular line of research. You know, there are, are practical considerations that come into play here. They can be moral, ethical considerations. Some kinds of scientific research might not be ethical. So I think at that kind of second order level, when we're deciding if you're a scientist, what kind of research to do and how to pursue it, judgment plays an important role. And the judgment's not arbitrary. It's going to be informed by your experience and professional background and the standards of your field and so on. I think that's fairly uncontroversial. That's what I call a kind of indirect role for judgment in scientific research. But I think things get a little bit more complicated when you start to think about the role of methodology. You know, if you are deciding what kind of method to employ in a given circumstance, what kind of statistical technique to use, what kind of diagnostic test to use in the laboratory, how you evaluate the performance of your diagnostic test, how you evaluate the performance of your experimental apparatus. Those are questions that are, tech, you know, they're practical, obviously, but they're also theoretical questions. You have to understand how diagnostic testing works, how your instrument works, and then you have to make decisions about how to evaluate them. One of the examples I use in the paper is, you know, if, let's say you have two testing methodologies in, in your laboratory. Let's say you have one testing methodology and a new, a new one kind of comes on the market and you're trying to decide, do I upgrade my, my lab? and get this new expensive automated test, or do I stick with the one in hand? Well, how do you decide that question? You have to, you can, presumably you want to do it using evidence. So maybe you perform a kind of experiment. You evaluate the two tests, but what do you use as a baseline to evaluate the performance of one over the other? In each of these cases, what you're doing is making a judgment about the most appropriate means to achieve a given end. Part of what I'm trying to argue here is that there's nothing at all wrong, untoward, or problematic about this. That's just part of the ordinary practice of science, whether it's research science or applied science. But where things get complicated is that some of those decisions do have bearings on the kinds of knowledge claims that science ultimately issues in. Yeah, there's a point in this part of your paper that really jumped out at me. And if you'll bear with me, let me quote it for, the, for our audience. You write about the construction of, of an experiment and, and trying to understand how much error is tolerable in this framework, what sort of equipment to use, and, and so on, you say. Here again, such judgment is neither arbitrary nor subjective. Besides past experience, 
in this case, the physicist, will rely on best practices, rules of thumb, and theoretical knowledge of the experimental context, including both practical and theoretical knowledge of the apparatus itself. Part of what it means to be an expert practitioner is to have cultivated the knowledge, habits, and instincts needed to assess one's instruments effectively in a given situation so as to reliably collect empirical data. And so you illustrate that the scientist is not just an expert in sort of the physics, chemistry, and so on. He necessarily has to be an expert in the practice of that field of science itself, which, as you said, is less about, is not simply about theory, but rather it's a matter of craftsmanship. Yeah, exactly. If you consider the case of that, you know, the instrument, let's say you're doing an experiment on something in a new area where you don't know what the result is. I mean, so this would be a contrast with what you do when you're in physics 101 and you do the inclined plane experiment to prove, you know, Galileo's finding about the you know, rate of fall. Right there, you're told, here's the result you want, here's how you're supposed to get it, and go into the laboratory and try to get that result. And if your result is different from the intended result, yeah, that's the deviation, and you want to make that as small as possible. It's almost literally the opposite of the scientific method as it's sort of generically described, right? It's confirmation bias in the extreme. <laughs> so in contrast to a case where you are, you know what the outcome is supposed to be. Let's say you're you know, experimental scientist in the setting where you don't know what the outcome of your experiment will be. And your instrument is giving you measurements about the phenomenon that you're trying to understand, electrical current or whatever. So the question then becomes, you know, if you get a misreading, if your instrument's telling you it's not registering something, is your instrument telling you that the phenomenon of interest is not there? Or is it just a noise, right? Is just your instrument registering an incorrect reading, right? All instruments are flat to human error. So there's always going to be some noise in your data. And assessing what the threshold is between those two things is actually a fairly complicated procedure if you think about it. And so the point there is that in order to make that determination appropriately, you have to have a good handle on your instrument, on your, on your experimental apparatus, and you have to understand enough about the scientific setting and what you're trying to do. In other words, you have to be an expert. And so that's, that's the kind of, in order to be a practicing scientist. Tony, another area where judgment is required in the practice of science itself. Well, let me just quote from your paper. You say this, a scientific experiment requires not only careful observations, but also a translation of those observations into a theoretical framework using a quantitative and symbolic language that is scientifically meaningful. And as you go on to explain, the point of this is, is that in addition to the craftsmanship of constructing an experiment to use the right tools, the right calibration, the scientist goes about this work with an idea of what practical information this experiment is supposed to teach. And that requires a judgment in and of itself of how a particular experiment maps on to the broader reality and the broader theory that the scientist is, is trying to explore. Once again, I probably butchered your point. Could you put it correctly for me? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. So, you know, we talked about kind of the role of judgment and choosing a research project and then applying a methodology and using an instrument and assessing it. But I think you know, if we get to the kind of the core, act, what we think of as the core activities of, of especially ordinary research science, collecting and interpreting data and testing hypotheses against data and then interpreting those results, 
I think even in these realms, and maybe especially in these realms, there's a very important role for judgment. And, you know, we talked a bit about this in the case of data, but there, you know, it's not simply that a scientist is like a computer, just, you know, I mean, a computer is not even really just a computer, right? There's this algorithmic kind of machinery built into it where what we're doing is we're taking readings or making observations, translating them into a mathematical language and interpreting them. And there are lots of different ways to do that. And different fields will do it slightly differently. There are different statistical techniques for how we understand and interpret data. And in all of these cases, there is not just room for, but requirement that a scientific expert exercise judgment. Of what's, the, what's the most appropriate way to understand or interpret a data set? You know, what, what data points constitute you know, just noise, which are part of your signal, you know, which are significant? And then when it comes to testing hypotheses, a similar situation prevails. I think here, there is a tendency to think about the scientific process as very kind of mechanical, where in rule bound, you know, so we look at some data, we formulate a hypothesis, you compare the hypothesis to the data, and if they don't match, you reject the hypothesis or something like that. But in fact, what scientists are, are usually doing is making complex judgments about how to interpret data in the light of usually multiple hypotheses and theories that are needed in the background to interpret the experimental setting. So the example that I give in the paper is due to Pierre Duhem, who was a philosopher, who was a practicing scientist and a historian of philosopher of science from the early 20th century, late 19th or 20th century. And he gives the example of somebody that doesn't know anything about electricity or physics or really any science, walking into a, a laboratory and watching a physicist experiment with electricity. You know, and what he sees is a bunch of instruments, kinds of materials, and the researcher watching the interaction of you know these different things, and you know, maybe you know, kind of a point of light bouncing on a metal apparatus, and then taking notes, trying to record what he's seeing. Right, and so the layman asks the physicist what it is that he's doing. What he won't say is, "Well, I'm looking at these materials and this copper wire and." I'm trying to measure the oscillation of the light as it bounces around on this apparatus over here. Right? He'll say something like, I'm trying to measure the electrical current or the resistance. What the scientist is doing there is interpreting, is translating a set of observations, which is what the layman sees, into a theoretical language that is meaningful to him. And what's, I think, important about this example is that it's meaningful to the scientist and not to the non-scientist, because the scientist has been trained and has the experience to understand what how the instruments function, what the mathematical techniques are needed to interpret the data, and what, are, what the phenomenon of interest is that he's trying to study. And so I refer to this as seeing as an expert, that there's, there's a sense in which an expert it literally sees the world differently than the non-expert. And what is going on there is the exercise of expert skill and judgment. And so I, I see this as, as important to how scientific knowledge works, even in realms that are kind of core to what we think of as scientific knowledge, testing hypotheses, interpreting data, and so forth. So it's not as if judgment is some external thing that you know happens when science gets used in certain cases, but rather expert judgment is, is really ineliminable to scientific practice. So the first half of your paper explores these questions of the nature of expert judgment in the work of science. This latter part of your paper focuses on decision makers, not just policymakers, but maybe especially policymakers. 
And what everything you've just described about the nature of expert judgment, what that implies for the work of decision makers who must use the information that's been produced by experts in order to make practical decisions of action. Could you describe maybe what that means? For purposes of this podcast, let's focus on policymakers. Everything you've just described, I mean, it's interesting to folks who are interested in sort of the history and nature of science, but what does this matter to the head of an agency, a president, or other decision makers who every day are making decisions based on expert judgments? Right. No, it's, it's a great question. And so part of the point that I want to make is that in a lot of cases, I would say maybe in the vast majority of cases, when we're talking about scientific research, it actually doesn't matter. And one thing you might say is, oh, okay, well, there's judgment plays a role in science, and that's because there is uncertainty about how to interpret data or which hypothesis to deem the correct interpretation of data or whatever. Okay, you know, does that mean that, that the science is uncertain? Or, you know, is, does it mean we, we should mistrust science or something? And that's not at all the point I want to make. It's to emphasize that judgment plays a role. But in the case of, say, astronomy, right, it doesn't really matter for policymakers. You know, we don't, we kind of, the description that I was giving earlier, I think would be unproblematic in most cases when we're talking about scientific knowledge that has no direct bearing out, you know, beyond the laboratory. I refer to this as, you know, non-epistemic consequences, where the consequences of the knowledge are practical or political or social. When that's not the case, you know, scientists can disagree, you know, they can run another experiment or whatever. And it matters in terms of trying to understand the world, but it doesn't really have any bearing on non-scientists. But the situation is obviously much more complicated when we are relying on scientific knowledge, when it comes to public health, take the, the kind of timely example, or when it comes to environmental policy, when it comes to medicine, even, you know, bracketing the, the policy context, when it's just, you know, you going to the doctor. In cases where the implications of expert knowledge are non-epistemic, when they have a bearing on non-scientists or non-scientific contexts, then the fact that, that there is judgment and uncertainty takes on a different kind of flavor, right? And it's usually in the, these areas where there's no rule, where there is a certain amount of uncertainty, where judgment is needed. It's usually in those areas where we get controversies about how to understand scientific knowledge, what it means for policy. And so the first thing I want to say is that we should be comfortable with the idea that, to some degree, reliance on scientific expertise is quite natural. Nobody would, would think that it would be unwise or unreasonable or elitist to say that an astronomer is better positioned to make a determination about how to interpret some astronomical observations than someone that hasn't studied any astronomy. And so a similar dynamic should obtain even when we're talking about science as applied to the policy domain. But I think the situation is also more complicated in those cases, because when science is taken out of the laboratory and put into fast-moving, complex political, social situations where knowledge is often uncertain, maybe radically uncertain, and lots of factors are at play, practical, ethical, social, etc., then what we're called upon to do if we're decision makers or policymakers is not simply rely on the judgment of an expert, but integrate that judgment into a deliberative process, right? To, to try to figure out the relevance of that judgment and how it fits into what we know or what other experts know about other fields and ultimately about, you know, what to do. And so that process, I think, also involves judgment. In fact, I think it involves lots more judgment and different kinds of judgment 
but it's also much more complex than the case where scientists are disagreeing among themselves about how to interpret some data in basic science or something like that. You contrast the work of the, of the expert with the expert of the non-decision, the non-expert decision maker. You say it's the difference between deciding that versus deciding to, right? Deciding what the facts are, perhaps, versus deciding what course of conduct follows from those facts. And of course, that's in, in policymaking is informed by not just the policy desires of the decision maker and the expert judgments of the expert. They're also informed by things like the statutes that set standards that the administration is implementing and, and so on. But setting that all to the side, I want to focus on this point about deliberation. Because again, that's key to your paper. It's in the title of your paper, after all, the role of judgment and deliberation in science-based policy. So what is the deliberation that you're talking about? Yeah. So I think, you know, if we're talking about a case where scientists disagree about something, let's say about how to interpret some data, you know, I have my view and theoretical framework and you have yours and we're trying to kind of hash it out. In a sense, what's happening is we're deliberating, right? We're trying to figure out the best means to a given end. How do we explain this phenomenon? And typically in scientific contexts, when there is this kind of turmoil, it's usually fairly temporary. And ideally, especially in basic sciences, you kind of reach a kind of consensus about guiding frameworks. But that deliberation is restricted to specialists, right? I mean, it would not make a lot of sense to have a deliberation procedure in astronomy about which model of which cosmological model is accurate that included people that didn't know anything about the relevant theories and, and, and didn't have the relevant background and training, right? It's a kind of deliberation that's going to be very restricted in scope. In the practical context, obviously, that's not the case. And here, so what I mean by deliberation is when we're talking about weighing judgments, that's what we're doing is deliberating, right? And part of deliberating well, well, first of all, it requires the appropriate use of judgment, prudential use of judgment, and it requires knowing with whom to deliberate, right? So in that specialized case, it would be imprudent to, you know, consult your, I think the example I use is, you know, your third grade social studies teacher, if you're an astronomer deliberating with other astronomers about the proper cosmological model. Right? It would be, that would be an imprudently wide sphere of deliberation. In a political context, however, if what we're doing is, say, trying to you know, decide whether or not to build a nuclear power plant or whether or not to impose a public health intervention, it would be imprudent, obviously, not to consult the relevant scientific experts, but it would be highly imprudent to only consult them because it's a decision that has wide-ranging implications not just for epidemiologists, but also for the people that the health, the public health measure in this example impacts, you know, the economic effects, the social effects, the effects on mental illness or whatever, the kind of wide range of potential effects of a given policy. And if you're making a decision and you want to be doing so prudently in the sense of making a good decision with good reasons, you need to be factoring in and consulting the relevant people, kinds of experts and kinds of people whose knowledge and know-how are needed to make that decision. It seems to me that, especially in the policymaking process, that kind of deliberation, especially when it's led by a governing official, it requires not just the sort of the whims and the preferences of that official. It, like the, the practice of science itself, has to be informed by broader sets of, of rules, rules of thumb, norms, traditions, and so on that help to guide the decision maker's own judgment about what deliberation actually calls for in a given case. 
And if that's right, then it seems to me that it's, it's yet another example of the importance of, of institutions in government. Every time we mention institutions on this podcast, I, I, I pay a nickel to my boss, Yuval Levin, for his, his, his book on <laughs> institutions. But it seems to me that what we're discussing here really is a classic study of what Yuval was talking about in his own book on institutions, right? In government, whether it's in the White House, in the agencies, in the National Institutes of, of Health and, and elsewhere in all parts of government, this deliberation and the ways in which expert judgments and the work of science and other forms of expertise feed into a policy make, making process really have to be guided not just by formal rules, but by the informal norms and institutions that make this a coherent process. Otherwise, it seems to me what you get is, to borrow a line from an area of constitutional law, it's like looking across your room and picking your friends, right? Saying, I like this scientist, I like this sort of output of the expert process. And you just sort of sidelines the ones you don't like. To make it less arbitrary, <laughs> there has to be sort of a system for this. Or, or am I overstating it? No, I think that's right. I mean, part of what I try to do in the paper and part of what we've been talking about so far are really kind of nice cases, right? Where cases where we're talking about scientific experts kind of acting as they should, being good experts, relatively speaking, and operating in realms where our knowledge is quite robust. There are uncertainties, judgments called for, but our knowledge is quite robust. And even, this is what I want to say, even in those cases, translating knowledge into policy, into practical decision-making is quite complex. And part of the reason for that complexity is the role of judgment, of expert judgment and of other types of judgment and deliberation that is needed to make that translation. Those are sort of the, the nicer cases, right? What about when we're in a political situation in which you know we have a new virus? Our knowledge is radically uncertain compared to those nicer cases. There are lots of competing interests. There are different schools of thought within the scientific community about how to understand the problem scientifically, much less practically. You're contending with differing value sets, you know, which goods to weigh and how to make trade-offs. These are the situations that are ultimately sort of the, you know, the most important because they're the most complicated and they tend to be characteristic of important political decisions. And here, I think it becomes even more complicated. To get to this institutional question, I think it's important to bear in mind the kind of lessons that we're talking about, about the role of judgment in deliberation. And so if what we're trying to do is understand how to make complex, partly technical decisions in a political context, what we're trying to do is figure out what the institutional arrangements are that are conducive to deliberation. And that's a very big question. And I don't, I don't have a sort of silver bullet for that. But one thing that I would say is, I think, well, I guess I would say two, and this is really, these are things that are not in the paper at all, but kind of going beyond trying to apply the lessons into a kind of broader realm. And, and one is, you know, I think if you take the black box picture of science that I was describing before, where the scientific expertise is this sort of mechanical procedure, and that we can use it to just kind of derive policy interventions. If you have that kind of view, well, it sort of strongly suggests what kind of political arrangement would be most conducive to you know, effective policy, which would be a centralized system in which you know, experts are just inputting their knowledge into you know, a political system where that knowledge can be implemented without much deliberation. Political deliberation comes to be seen as an obstacle, as something that is counterproductive to policymaking. 
in a sense, it's a very apolitical or anti-political view about how decision-making should operate. And so if my view is right, that view of that kind of anti-political view of decision-making can't be right, right. In other words, we need to have an institutional setup where we have channels for a plurality of viewpoints and stakeholders to deliberate or to do something that resembles deliberation, where we can weigh the kinds of trade-offs that policy interventions call for. I think COVID is a really good example of this, where you know, often the most contentious aspects of what we're talking about when it comes to you know, whether it's mask wearing or you know, the lockdown policies, what's really going on is we're having a debate, although we're pretending to not have a debate, about trade-offs and about value judgments. You know, is economic liberty more important than public health? Is you, know, you might argue that these that's a false trade-off or whatever. But what we're doing in these cases, what's the most effective mechanism to the least harmful way to reduce transmission while also trying to allow people to go about their business as close to normal as possible? These are obviously partly scientific questions, but they're also value judgments where we're, we're called upon to take sometimes two goals that are in tension and make a decision about how to weigh them. In cases like this, clearly, it seems to me, scientific knowledge is important, but there's no simple translation from scientific knowledge to correct policy intervention. What's needed is a deliberation about how we weigh these different things. How do we weigh you know, interest A versus interest B? And that is going to be something that has to happen not in a executive branch agency, which has this narrow mandate, but in a political form, like, for example, Congress, which is supposed to be a deliberative body. So that, that's kind of, the, I guess, the first thing I would say about the, the institutional implications. And, I, and the second, which I only allude to in the paper, is I think in this kind of setting, what becomes really important is a kind of expertise that's sort of translational expertise, where people who are capable of understanding scientific, technical issues, but also capable of understanding the, the political process, the policy process, and the regulatory, the legal, or the local context, or whatever, people who have a capacity to kind of translate between technical and non-technical languages become important. And it's a kind of mediating role that I think sometimes can help to facilitate a productive conversation, deliberation, or whatever you want to call it in these complicated situations. I introduced this episode by referring back to the COVID-19 experience and what we've learned, and you just did too. But in so many ways, it seems to me, COVID-19 experience, I mean, while it reminds us of the importance of these issues, it's sort of the worst example of all this, precisely because there was so much uncertainty around the virus at first. There was so much political argument, often shifting very quickly over what the policy upshot of the science was. And obviously, mm. the conflicts between President Trump and, and Dr. Fauci and sort of partisans who, who claimed Trump and Fauci as their champions exploded everything. I mean, it, it continued even after Trump left office. You know, President Biden, when he sort of said from the beginning that, that his COVID-19 policy would be to, if I remember correctly, he said to just follow the science. I mean, for all the reasons you, you explain in your paper, that's not actual, that sort of begs the question of the actual work of governance. But going beyond generalities, I mean, here's one practical problem that I saw in the, in the Trump-Fauci experience of COVID-19 that really I thought showed how poorly our view of the role of experts in government was formed. 
it was a sort of dual role that the country called on Dr. Fauci to play. On the one hand, he was part of government. He was part of President Trump's task force. He's now part of President Biden's task force. And so he had a role of formulating just the basic information surrounding the virus and giving the president and the rest of government his best possible advice. At the same time, Dr. Fauci was one of the most prominent faces of the government's response, constantly on television, sometimes at press conferences with President Trump, often sort of just doing his own outreach, answering questions from the press and the public. And it seemed to me very early on, before things really exploded, that for a government expert like Dr. Fauci, that dual role was just simply untenable, that he couldn't simultaneously do his best job on the inside, advising the president and the, gov- and the rest of the government, while at the same time doing the role that you kind of alluded to earlier, translating the science and the policy from the realm of experts to the realm of the general public. It just seemed to me that those roles were in the long run, even in the short run, just fundamentally incompatible. Am I misreading or over, overstating the problem here? Or did you see attention there as well? Well, it's interesting. In a certain sense, I think I would look at it a little bit differently, which is kind of bracketing whatever you think of Fauci and his, if he's done a good job or whatever. If you think about the role of someone like him, I actually sort of see that role as, in some ways, essentially a kind of translational role. And what I mean is, Fauci is not you know, in a laboratory doing research, right? He's not a, what the sociologist of science, Harry Collins, calls a contributory expert. He's not in there advancing hypotheses and refuting others and conducting tests, designing experiments. He obviously is an expert and a scientific expert, but he's also an expert in policy and how science interrelates with government and spent his career doing that. And I think that there is a view that you might pull out of our discussions, which I would want to reject, which is that experts can only talk about the narrow field in which they have contributory expertise. I want to suggest that that's not right, that while it's true that experts tend to be, I mean, they're by definition specialists, and they have a narrow range in which they are expert, especially when it comes to political context, when we're making policy decisions, we're asking scientific experts to go beyond that and to give recommendations. You know, public health and I think this is this is this is clear in some domains than others. Like public health is maybe the best example of that, where it, the field is by its nature a kind of hybrid of policy and science. And so, what I would say is that there's nothing in principle wrong with that. The danger is always going to be in the details and the kinds of judgment calls that are made, and especially I think the public perception of the participants. I mean, I think one of the things that's clear with COVID is that. The credibility of scientific experts is really important, and there is a lot of potential to erode trust. And one of the ways that I see that happening, and I think that Dr. Fauci unfortunately embodies this in some cases, is a propensity among the scientific expert community to downplay the role of judgment, to downplay the role of uncertainty within their fields, and then especially when it comes to the application of knowledge to complex policy problems. I think a really good example of this is the masking debate, right? So the initial recommendation was that we shouldn't use masks. And in fact, some people advocated vehemently against their use you know, from the scientific side. And then 
the guidance changed. And you know, of course, we all know that masking is now the kind of consensus view about what we should do to combat COVID. And unsurprisingly, this led to this this reaction where you know people resist the, the masking mandates and they you know want to say that the scientific experts were either lying or they were wrong and so therefore not trustworthy. That debate kind of perfectly encapsulates the dangers, I think, of failing to adequately describe what it is that someone like Dr. Fauci is doing when he makes the recommendation for or against mask use, right? So like something that you'll sometimes hear the experts say is, well, now that we know a lot more about masks, we know that they work. We know more about the, you know, the virus, and so we know that they work. And so we didn't recommend them at first, and now we do. But that's not quite right, right? I mean, it's true that we know a lot more about the virus, and we do have more studies. But what kinds of studies are they? They're mostly not randomized control studies, which randomized control trials, which a lot of experts, though not all, would argue is the gold standard for assessing the efficacy of that kind of policy intervention. So you have a disagreement among experts, not only about what to do, but about how to evaluate what to do. Should we do a large-scale randomized control trial, as was tried, at least in one case, to evaluate the effectiveness of masks? Or should we rely on observational studies or indirect lines of evidence? That's a disagreement. And my point here isn't to say that masks aren't effective. My point is to say that there's obviously room for expert judgment, even within the scientific context. Translate that into a policy situation where you're weighing all kinds of variables. You know, the accessibility of protective personal equipment for healthcare workers and complicated production questions that implicate all kinds of economic and practical factors. It seems wildly implausible to think that anybody could be operating with 100% certainty in those conditions. And so when experts talk as if they, they can and they are, I think it invites distrust. And so that's sort of how I would get at the question. It's not so much that there's something fundamentally wrong with an expert having a dual role, because in some sense, that's what we're asking them to do and need them to do. But I think the kind of problems come in how experts understand themselves in that role, and especially the kind of rhetoric they use when communicating expertise to the public and to policymakers. Now, on the, the risk of eroding trust in, in expert judgment in, in governance, there's a paper you wrote just a couple of years ago for The New Atlantis. You co-wrote it with Zach Graves, The Lincoln Network, titled Reviving Expertise in a Populist Age. And you, you, you and Zach wrote about the challenge of populism to institutional expertise. I really encourage our listeners to read that. Let's move from, from the erosion of public trust and expertise to the, the restoration of it or just the protection of it in its proper sphere. What sort of institutional changes would you recommend for the United States government to make better use, proper use of expertise in policymaking? A small question, right? <laughs> well, I alluded to that earlier. And I would say a kind of most obvious one for me would be a reasserted role for Congress. And the reason for that is while there's, of course, an important role that executive agencies play in technical policymaking, we know, no doubt, whether it's the FDA or the CDC or the EPA or whatever, clearly there's, there's an important role there. But what's significant, I think, about Congress is that it's a, it's a deliberative body and it's designed to be responsive to a range of a plurality of, of interests and viewpoints and democratic pressures. And although it's not functioning so well nowadays, in principle, I think Congress is sort of the natural setting for democratic deliberation about scientific, technical policy issues. 
And and related to that, I think Congress also has an important role in holding the executive agencies accountable in these realms. I think actually COVID is a good illustration of that. We saw and continue to see the outsized role that FDA and the CDC play in the COVID response. And that's not, I'm not denigrating that in any way. But I think one thing that most Americans could probably agree on is that the governmental response to the pandemic here in the United States was not great, <laughs> less, less something to be desired. And so one question you might ask is, you know, who's going to get held accountable for what? At some point, we're going to have to figure out what went wrong. What role did the FDA or CDC play in different aspects of the pandemic response? Where were they effective or not? And Congress is obviously, and I'm getting into your territory here, but you know, Congress is the body that's constitutionally charged with that task, overseeing the executive branch. And to do that, well, Congress has to know what it's, what it's doing, right? It needs to have access to expertise that's independent of the bodies that it is holding accountable. I think a good example of this is looking at regulation in the medical space. I mean, we don't have to get into the weeds of it, but a lot of people have argued that the ambiguity surrounding the regulation of diagnostics played a big role in some of the problems we saw in the early days of the pandemic with, with the kind of botched testing rollout. And there is movement to reform that area of regulation. So there you've got you know, the FDA regulating body and you have private industry, you've got the university researchers, there are a lot of interests at stake. And so, well, Congress not only should, probably will make a decision about what to do in that area. Well, how are they going to do that if they're going to rely entirely on the expertise of the FDA, private industry, and the university researchers? That sort of poses an obvious accountability problem. And so that's just one, one example where I think Congress, if better equipped with expertise in science, technology, medicine, it really is well positioned to inject more democratic and other kinds of accountability into our political system when it comes to science-related policy. You've written elsewhere about building up Congress's own, its own in-house capacity for analyzing these issues, the rebuilding the old Office of, of Technology. Was it Office of Technology Assessment, OTA? That's, That's right. The OTA. Yep. That would be one, one way to do that, right? You know, so the, for those who, who don't follow the issue, the OTA was a congressional agency that was created by statute in 1972, operated until 1995 when it was defunded. It still exists on the books. The statute that created it was never repealed, but funding was turned off in 95 by congressional Republicans, part of the Gingrich Revolution. It was a sort, sort of symbolic effort to shrink government and to do so by beginning you know, at home and targeting a pretty easy candidate in the sense that OTA had a small budget relative to the overall federal budget and had been accused of political bias by Republicans at various points. And so it was shuttered. But what OTA was created to do and what it did do was provide an independent source of expertise, especially in science and technology and medicine and related technical issues to Congress and to, to enable it to discharge its constitutional role, the legislative body in the federal government and the one that should be holding the executive branch accountable in their implementation of the law. So I think there's been discussion about bringing the OTA back. I think that would be one way to equip Congress better. It's not the only way, but it's sort of an obvious one to think about. The Government Accountability Office also runs a technology assessment operation 
and has been actually for a few years and is trying to build out more of doing the kinds of operations that OTA did. So, you know, I think encouraging and growing that could be another way to go. But I think the common element there is that this is part of a broader erosion of congressional capacity. You, know, you can measure it in different ways, looking at staffing levels, especially in the committees, with, which have shrunk in the congressional agencies, which have shrunk or been eliminated, as in OTA's case, that has left Congress extremely deferential to executive agencies. And I think that's most, in my view, most clear when it comes to science policy. And it's not a coincidence that when Congress began the deliberations about what to do to reassert itself in the post-war period, really picking up steam in the 60s and then the early 70s, when there were a lot of reform efforts, it's not a coincidence that a lot of what was the focus of those discussions was this growing role of the federal government in science. It was really driven by the executive branch coming out of World War II. And Congress sort of woke up and said, we're cutting checks for all of this research and other kinds of science technology related activity. We don't really understand what we're doing. And OTA was one response to that. And so I, I think thinking about the broader issue of strengthening Congress is an important part of this. I think it's only one aspect of the this rather large issue of how to understand the relationship between science and governance. But I think it's an important one. Yeah, and looking beyond Congress, I mean, when I think about these issues, I think more and more about whether it would be possible for the, federal, the government as a whole to just improve the quality of its fact-finding, its scientific expertise, and so on. There's, you can think of so many sort of bureaus and agencies that are just in the business of finding facts and making projections, everything from the Energy Information Administration to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, CBO, and so on, the, the U.S. Geological Survey, the census, although that's increasingly politicized, and others. And I wonder if it'd be possible to bolster that part of our government, but do it in a way that's outside from or a step removed from the policymaking functions of government, whether it's just insulating those offices within an agency, or I guess better still, separating them altogether from the policymakers. But I suppose at the end of the day, it's impossible to totally separate fact-finding from policymaking for exactly the reasons you've discussed. But we'll leave that as a rhetorical question because we, we don't have nearly enough time to explore all of it. We'll save that for, for our next podcast. But Tony, before we go, as I said at the beginning, you're still pretty newly arrived at AEI. Could you just tell us a little bit about your broader research agenda and the sorts of things you're working on at AEI and and how the things we've talked about today fit, fit into it? Sure, yes. Let me also just say thanks for the opportunity to come on and, and to talk about this with you. Really, one focus of my, of my work is a lot of what we've been talking about today, which is the relationship between you know, science and democracy broadly, but really how to integrate scientific expertise into democratic governance. And there are a lot of facets to that. I think you know, the one you were alluding to before is how do we build institutional mechanisms, arrangements that you know, balance, on the one hand, the, the need for and the importance of scientific expertise, and on the other hand, democratic accountability. That's a lot of what I spend my time doing and thinking about, whether it's relating to specific issues of Congress or the more general kinds of even philosophical questions we've talked about. And the other is thinking about the government's role in science. And so we've, we've spent most of our time talking about the former, but the latter is also a very important topic, and it's where I spend a lot of my time as well. And so here, the question is, what policies the federal government should or should not have to stimulate scientific research? You know, what, what is the government's role in science? We, discussing briefly the kind of post-war period, I think we're operating in a paradigm that was really established in that 
post-war period, the decades following World War II, which was really the first time that the federal government became massively invested in scientific research and also that scientific experts became integrated into governing, at least in a kind of a large-scale way. And I think that that kind of compact between government and science is, is due for a, a kind of rethink. And so I spend a lot of my time thinking about what that would mean. What's the proper role of federal funding in scientific research? Should it be directed? Should it be undirected? And so on and so forth. So some of this gets into issues relating to innovation, relationship between science and technology. But that's the kind of the rough and ready version. On that last point about the funding of science and, and the turning point at World War II, this is another area where Tony has written in the New Atlantis. He had a piece he co-offered with his father, Mark Mills, a senior fellow up at the Manhattan Institute. And the paper in the New Atlantis was titled The Science Before the War, How the Technological Feats of World War II Grew Out of Curiosity-Driven Research. I'd really encourage people to go back and find that article. Time and time again, we referred to the New Atlantis. I should probably put a plug in for that. Before we go, as mentioned earlier, Tony was an associate <laughs> editor there. He writes often there. I'm a contributing editor. Like all contributing editors for any publication, I write there sometimes, so probably not enough. But it's really just a, a crucial <laughs> publication for the, the, sorts of, the sorts of issues that we've been discussing today. And once again, Tony, in addition to being a resident scholar at AEI, I just add he's a senior fellow at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy and a scholar associate at the Society of Catholic Scientists. So look for his work. On first and foremost at the AEI website, but also take a look for the papers that we've been discussing today. His working paper at the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State on the Role of Judgment and Deliberation in Science-Based Policy being first and foremost among them. Tony, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Adam. And thanks as always to our audience for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Unprecedental. 